Um, in our passage this morning, if you would open your Bibles, uh, we're going to look at a group of people and some circumstances that they found themselves in. As the Apostle Peter wrote to them, if you'd open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5, this is a group of people that found themselves in uh, persecuted circumstances. Uh, Persecution had not quite yet reached the point where they were losing their life for the faith that they had, Uh, but they were being slandered, Uh, they were being ridiculed, possibly even losing property for their faith, but they, they weren't dying yet for their faith, Uh, but they were suffering. Uh, The setting for this book, this letter that the Apostle Peter wrote was to the dispersion in Asia Minor, believers that had been scattered, uh, no doubt Jews, but also Gentiles, as within the book identifies um, certain aspects of these two different groups of people, Gentiles as well as Jews. And so it's applicable not only to Jewish people, but it's also applicable to Gentiles, which No doubt, most likely, all of us fall into that category. The time frame that it was written in was most likely between 60 and 65 AD. Uh, The reason why, uh, the primary reason why, not only internally evidence that they had not been killed for their faith yet, um, brings me to the conclusion that it was approximately during that time when Peter was most likely in Rome writing this, that the persecution that the emperor Nero began in AD 63-64 hadn't yet taken place. Uh, Nero, as some of you well know, was really the beginnings of widespread Roman persecution. Uh, Nero would unleash uh, his unjustified wrath on the church Um, in such a way that had not yet been seen up to this point. And so it was most likely written in that time just before those events when Nero set Rome on fire and blamed the Christians for it, that this letter was written. So let's read it together. We're going to be in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 through 11, primarily 6 through 11, but to bring in a little more context, we'll read verse 5. So let's read it together. 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning in the second half of verse 5. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering or being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, as we come to your word this morning, teach us. Teach us through your Spirit, the author of Scripture. 
And you being the author and perfecter of our faith through the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in him, Lord, teach us. We want to hear from you this morning. Use your word to instruct us in the way we should go. All to the glory of Christ and God's people said. In our passage before us this morning, the Lord describes four character qualities or attitudes that the believer should have when facing suffering. Four character qualities or attitudes that the believer should have when facing suffering. I'm going to give all four of them to you because I know some of you probably like to take notes, write them down, and then as we go along, you can take notes under their heading. The first one is humility. Humility. The second one is trust. Trust. The third, self-control. Self-control. And the fourth is resolve. Resolve. So let's first look at humility. We find that in the second half of verse 5 and verse 6. And all of you, that is every one of you, that is all of you who are within the church, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What does it mean to, to clothe yourselves with humility? Well, this, this Greek term is really simple. It, it really means uh, to tie on an apron. If you were to uh, go and to serve someone within your home or to serve someone in another context, and you wanted to keep yourself clean, you would tie on an apron. You would put it on over your head, and you would wrap it on. It is to clothe yourself with something as you are preparing to serve someone else. Jesus gave this as kind of an example. When he, when he tied on the towel, he, he set aside his outer garment and he tied on the towel and then he did what? He served the apostles by washing their feet. Took on a servant's job. So to tie on the apron, to, to tie on humility toward one another is really to, to prepare yourselves to serve one another. Humility, by the way, in this context, in this culture, in this day and age, not in the Bahamas now, but maybe it is, but in Peter's time, humility was not admirable. <laughs> it was the absolute lowliest of the character qualities of a person. To be humble was not admirable. No, to exalt yourself and to show yourself exalted was admirable. So this is contrary to the culture to tie on the servant's apron to serve someone else in humility. A little plug here for small groups, that's exactly what we do. That's exactly what small groups are for is to tie on the apron of servanthood to serve one another in love, to care for one another in the struggles that you're having, whether it be with sin, whether it be with some type of suffering that you're experiencing, to serve one another in love, to tie on the apron of humility and to serve one another. Why? Why do such a thing? Well, he gives the reason why here. For why? Let's read it. God is what? Opposed to the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. That word opposed there, don't take it lightly. <laughs> in, uh, in the Hebrew, literally what it means is God is standing ready to fight against you. That's pretty serious. 
That's a pretty serious implication for those that would be proud. God stands opposed, ready to fight those who would make themselves prideful. These six things the Lord hates, yes, seven are an abomination to him. What's the first one? Haughty eyes. It's another way of saying proud. The Lord hates pride. What was Satan's fall? Pride. Pride. That's right. God hates pride. Therefore, we are to humble ourselves in light of that, to recognize that he gives grace to the humble. Man, I want grace. (laughs) I, I don't want God standing opposed to me because I will exalt myself in pride. No, I want his grace. I want his unmerited favor in my humility. That's the reasons why we do it. That's why we humble ourselves, because we recognize we serve a God who hates pride. It is the thing that stands against him. It is the thing that exalts itself against him. To be prideful is to be against God. So we are to clothe ourselves in humility because God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to those who are humble. Therefore, he says in verse 6, therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. That is, put yourself under God's mighty hand. This, this, uh, this phrase, God's mighty hand, it's not new. The apostle Peter knew it. Any, any Jewish within person within earshot would have understand what he was talking about. It is a familiar phrase to them. God has delivered Israel many times with a a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, right? He delivered Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Same concept here. The idea is that you, when you realize that you are to be humble, you are to tie on the apron of humility, that you are to humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. Well, What's the illustration for his mighty hand here? Simply, in the context, these people are suffering. They needed to recognize that God's hand was the one that was controlling it. They're not to put themselves under someone else's hand. No, they're to put themselves under the hand who actually is in control. It's what it meant in Old Testament times. It's what it means to these believers in New Testament times, and it's what it means for us today. Really, the expression of God's mighty hand is just His absolute sovereignty. He has the will, the ability, and the power to carry anything out that He pleases. That's what sovereignty is. He is the one controlling all circumstances that affects the life of the believer. Mark that down, brothers and sisters. You have one who's in control of all circumstances in your life. He is the one. There is no other. Sometimes his mighty hand is for the purpose of discipline, right? Hebrews 12. If the Lord steps in because of your sin, he will discipline. Praise God for that, right? We're having a conversation last week with some other brothers about... Uh, I, I want my discipline now. How about you? Do you want it in eternity with the unbeliever? Mm-mm. No, because that one doesn't end. No, I, I want my discipline now. I, I want it in this life. So sometimes God's mighty hand brings these circumstances into our life for discipline, where we are actually walking contrary to him. 
Sometimes he simply brings it to exalt his own glory, to bring glory and honor to himself in your life. The Apostle Paul pleaded with the Lord three times for him to take away whatever this demonic oppression was that he had, a messenger of Satan to buffet him, pleaded with the Lord three times. If there was ever anybody that was close to the Lord in 100% human embodiment, the apostle Paul should have been able to get what he wanted, right? But what did the Lord say to him? No, that's what he said. No, no. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. Didn't deliver it. Didn't deliver him. It was for his own purpose and his own glory. In our context here, the idea of God's mighty hand that we are to humble ourselves under it, the circumstance that we're in, to recognize that he is the one who is in control and he's going to do something. There is going to come a time where it's, it's going to come to an end. Whatever your suffering is, it is going to come to an end. He says this in the second half of verse 6, that he may exalt you at the proper time. That is, that's not sequential time. That is, God has appointed a time where he has said, your deliverance will come right here, right then, but not until I say, not until I am the one who stops it or delivers you from it. Not until I have my perfect way in you. This is, this is one of the things that I, I think we need to pray more often in this regard. We should pray for healing of our brothers and sisters, should we not? Absolutely we should. Especially in James, we have clear mandate that should take place. But what else should we be praying for? Just their healing? is. What if they get healed? They're still gonna die, right? How about this? God, bring glory to yourself in this circumstance, whatever it is. God, bring yourself, in the Bahamian colloquialism, get yourself glory. Get yourself glory in this. If it means the brother or sister dies, get yourself glory in that. If it means the most glory will come from you healing, God, heal. If it means that that brother or sister will be humbled, will be more like the Lord Jesus Christ, glorify yourself in that. Don't just pray for healing because God may not want to heal. He will eventually heal, right? When they die, they will be healed. If they're in Christ, they will be 100% healed. But in this life, it might not happen. It might not happen in this life. There is an appointed time when they will be delivered, when you will be delivered, but it is God's appointed time. Pray for their greatest benefit and God's greatest glory. That's how we should pray. I want you to look at this illustration with me on, on how important it is, this humiliation of a man. The humility of a man. Listen to this. Philippians chapter 2. You can turn there if you like or, or you can just listen along. Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11. Have this mind in yourselves. That is this attitude within yourselves. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. Who though he was in the form of God. What does it mean to be in the form of God? It means did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. 
Even though he was God in human flesh, he didn't see that as being equal with God, something to hold on to. No, but he did something else. What did he do? But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's humility. As always, our example is Christ Jesus himself. You want to know how to be humble? Look what it means to be emptied, to empty yourself. It's not about you. It's about God's glory. Your life has been bought at a price. You don't own it anymore. You were once held captive by the God of this world known as the devil, but you were redeemed with precious blood. He bought you, so he owns you. He may do all that he pleases with you for his glory and your good. So how, how are we to do this? How are we to, how are we to humble ourselves? What's the process here? Number two, our second point, trust. Verse seven, here's how we do it. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Casting is really simple. All it, all it really means is just throw, like throwing a blanket over the top of something. Like if you were to uh, put a blanket on a horse before you're getting ready to ride, that's the idea. You're casting something over someone or something else. Taking all of your anxiety, all of your worry, all of your fear, and saying, God, there you go. That's what it means. Casting it all on him. I want you to write this down. Write this down. In your mind, for memory, or on paper. Anxiety is a byproduct of faithlessness or distrust in God. Anxiety is a byproduct of faithlessness or distrust in God. Anxiety and pride work really, really well together. They're bed partners. The more you worry about something, the more you try to fix it on your own. Whatever the problem is at hand, whether it's your physical infirmities, whether there's this huge thing that's out there, whatever the case is, the anxiety and the fear that you're experiencing is a byproduct of you not trusting, of me not trusting Essentially, for us as a Christian, what, what we're saying is, we're telling God, I can handle this better than you can. Ooh. Distrust. Now, I know nobody would say that, right? No, no, no Christian would actually come out and say that. But our actions, when we are worrying, when we're fearful, when we're overly concerned about the circumstances in our life, we are saying, God, I can handle this better than you can. I can handle this better than you. Do you think he's going to deliver you out of that or let you stay in it a while? His goal is to get us to trust in him, right? To trust in him more. With anxiety, you certainly are trusting in something, but that something is typically yourself or your own thinking, or your own ability. With anxiety, you are trusting something, but it's typically yourself. Trust Him. Philippians 4, 6, and 7, we all know this very well. Be anxious for 
nothing, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's trust. That's trust. In the midst of the hard thing, whatever it is, and I don't want to diminish the difficult things in our lives. I'm not diminishing that at all. But are they too big for the Lord to handle? No matter what it is? No. We are not to be anxious for any of them, but we are to pray and to trust and to be thankful in the midst of it. Whoa, that's got to be hard, right? I mean, I think a terminal illness, someone being thankful in the midst of praying when they know their days are short. I haven't experienced that. I've never had a terminal illness I try to be thankful in the difficult things. I try to pray, but as many times as I've been close to death, at least what I would consider close to death, uh, I've never really experienced that type of anxiety. But I'm sure some of you have. And God's word for all of us, no matter the level of your anxiety that you experience, is pray and trust. Pray and trust. And God's peace, however that works, which surpasses all comprehension, I don't get how this is going to come out, I don't understand how it's going to work out, but God, I trust you. I trust you in this. Jesus said in Luke 12, 25 and 26, and and which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Wouldn't that be great? Like if our anxiety was a measure of how much we can prolong our life? Probably never die, right? And listen to this. He says in 26, then if you are not able to do a small thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? If you can't add one second to your life, why in the world would you be worried about all the other stuff? If God has that component of your life so much under control that he has determined the very second, the very hour, the very day, the very year of the end of your life, if he is in complete control of that, why in the world would you worry about anything else? God is in control of your very life. And your very health. Deuteronomy 32, 39. See, this is the Lord talking. See now that I, even I, am He. And there is no God beside me. I kill, I make alive. I wound, and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. The Lord's in control. The Lord is in control. Since he is in control anyway, the primary reason for casting our anxiety on him is what? What's the last half of the verse there? Casting all your anxiety on him. Why? Because he cares for you. That's precious right there. Not because he's some disconnected deity that's just, okay, I've determined when you're going to die, so just whatever. No. No. Whatever the concern is, 
He cares about it. All the people, all the faces here, every believer throughout time can say that exact thing about their circumstance. This infinite God cares about every single anxious detail of every believer that has ever walked the face of the earth or that ever will. That's big. He has that much care. Remember, it's not care based on you though, right? Who does he see when he sees you? The Lord Jesus Christ. His care and his love is expressed first and foremost through the love of his son. That's what salvation is all about. Read John chapter 6. The Lord has given you as a gift to the Lord. That's salvation. God the Father in eternity past chose you to give to the Son as a gift. You don't think he cares for you? <laughs> oh, he cares. He cares so much in accordance with the love that he has for the Son. That's big. That's big. He causes all things to work together for our good and his greatest glory. Okay, let's move on. Number three, self-control, verses eight through nine. Self-control. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Again, this is in the imperative. It's a command to, to keep sober. The, the foundation of what that word means is to not be drunk. It has to do with not being satiated with alcohol. For in the New Testament, it is being used now, and Peter used it in chapter 4, verse 7, as this idea of don't have your mind clouded. Don't have your mind consumed essentially with things of the world. Be thinking soberly, be thinking straight, be thinking clearly, and be on the alert. That is vigilance. You're to be paying attention. As you are thinking clearly, as you are keeping your mind pure from the word, you are to be vigilant. Something is out there. You'd be paying attention. Peter could very well have been having in his mind the idea, or not the idea, but the instance when he was in the garden. Remember when the, the Lord, just before he was about to be arrested, went into the garden and prayed, and he had Peter, James, and John there, and he says, pray here now. Stand watch, keep guard, that you don't fall into temptation, that you don't enter into temptation. Peter may have been thinking about that, to be vigilant. To be thinking clearly. Don't fall asleep. Something is lurking about. Something or someone is lurking about. He also could have been possibly thinking about the time when the Lord told him, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you is what he told him. He knew that Peter would come out of that because he prayed for him. So why? Why are we to keep sober? Why are we to have a clear head? Why are we to have a clear thinking and to be vigilant? Why? He gives the reason. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. That's why. That's why. Adversary, it's just simply the one who accuses you in a court of law. That's the name that's given to him here. The accuser. That's what the adversary is. The devil, that's another term. 
his actual proper name, it means slanderer. So the one who accuses you before God, who slanders you before God, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Not seeking someone to hurt, not seeking someone to stumble, cause to stumble, not, not seeking someone to disavow. No, he wants to disembowel you. If he could end your life today, he would. In an instant. Because he knows that you have something that God wants you to give away. What is that? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. That glorious gospel that we are to have on our lips, to spread through all the earth, to proclaim to every tribe, tongue, and nation, to every creature, is on your lips. And if he could stop that from happening right now, he would in an instant. He is seeking someone to devour. He is prowling around like a roaring lion. I want you to listen to this account. We have a wonderful first-hand account of what this actually looks like, where Satan is accusing a believer in God before God. You can turn there if you like, but write it down, and you can look back at it yourself. Job chapter 1, verses 7 through 12. This is where all the sons of God, that is a It is a word that's used for all the angels of God. They appear before God to give an account to God. And this is what it says with regard to Satan. Satan shows up at the same time. And the Lord said to Satan, verse 7, The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and says, From going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. So he's roaming around the earth around the earth, not the heavens. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? Stop right there for a second. (laughs) I mean, who, who wants to say why right now? I mean, really, Satan didn't bring him up. Satan didn't say, hey, let me have that Job. God brought him up. It's just a I mean, I understand it now, <laughs> now, but in initially listening to this, why in the world would God bring up his name to the very one who wants to destroy him? You don't think God's in control? So he says, have you considered my servant Job? He calls him his servant. It's like adding more fuel to this. That there is none like him. Satan, out of all the people on earth, there is one man who is the greatest of all these. His name is Job. There's nobody else like him. He is blameless. That is, before me, there is no sin in Job's life. He's telling this to Satan, an upright man. There is nothing about him that anyone can say negative about him. Not a single thing. Who fears God and turns away from evil. Verse 9, then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? You have put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side. You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, 
Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only Listen to the control. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And he went out and did all that the Lord allowed him to do. He killed his family, killed off all of his animals and livestock, burnt up his houses. He killed his kids. All seemingly for, first and foremost, his glory. And secondly, to prove that faith endures. And that's for us. The genuine faith in God will endure. By the power of God, it will endure. By the keeping power of God and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it will endure. And Satan learned that lesson. All the way at the end, you see God and you see Job and Job worshiping God in the end. Never once does God accuse him of sin, and never once does Job deny his trust in God. Not once. His faith endured all the way to the end. So we have this picture, this illustration that God has given us by way of Job of how this actually takes place, where our adversary, who is prowling around like a roaring lion, he is seeking someone to devour. He is going around, he is accusing, he is slandering God's people, and he wants to kill you. That's our our adversary. That's our enemy, the enemy of our soul. He can accuse all he wants, but he cannot do anything to the child of God without the Father's approval. Super important for you to hold on to, folks. Really, really important. There is nothing, not one single thing that the devil, that created being, the angel who has fallen and take many fallen with him, there is not one single thing that he can do you, do to you or against you outside of God's enabling power for him. There is one who is in control. There is one who is sovereign. You have been bought with a price. No one can touch you without God's approval. Listen to this quote from Charles Spurgeon. Quote, It would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent. That the bitter cup was never filled by His hand. That my trials were never measured out by Him nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity, close quote. What Spurgeon is saying is, what a horrible thought it would be if Satan was actually able to do anything to you outside of God's controlling power. What a horrible thought that would be to think Satan is sovereign, to think Satan has more ability than that which has been given to him by his creator. Satan wants to be God. He's not God. He does not have sovereign control over anything in the believer's life. God does. God does. Does it mean you can't be taken captive as you're tempted? 
and you actually give in to that temptation, that doesn't remove you from your responsibility. It just simply means when that temptation comes, guess what? God has allowed him to do it. God has allowed him to do it. We're going to see where the deliverance comes here later on, though. Verse 9, let's keep moving on. Verse 9, we are to do something with regard to this slanderer, this, this adversary of ours. The Scripture says we are to resist him. So the question is, how do we actually resist the devil? How do we resist him? Maybe we should go down to the local apostle and ask him to bind Satan for us. Apparently they have power to do that. Poor Satan, here he is. Well, an apostle bound me, I can't do anything. Foolish arrogance is what that is. You don't have right to bind Satan. Think about the archangel Michael. Now, if there was somebody who could be certainly powerful enough to bind Satan or to stop him from something, I would think Michael would probably be able to have the ability to do that. Jude 1.9 gives this account, and it's almost funny, but it's super instructive. Jude 1.9 says, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, that is Satan, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said what? The Lord rebuke you. That's it. (laughs) The Lord rebuke you. He didn't have some long, drawn-out conversation with Satan. I bind you in the name. No. No. There was no power given to him at that time to stop Satan from doing what he was doing. All he said was, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, the Lord's got a plan for Moses' body. I got my own opinion what that is. I think it has to do with the two witnesses in Revelation, but we can talk about that later. There was no power given to him to do anything. He just simply said, the Lord rebuke you. Folks, don't give Satan something he doesn't have. Don't have a conversation with him. He doesn't know as God knows. He knows man really well because he watches. He is constantly going to and fro, right? He knows the sin of man because he was in the garden. The very beginning of sin. But he does not know your thoughts. Don't let anyone tell you different. He may know the thought patterns of man and what they do, but he is not omniscient. He is not omnipresent. He is not omnipotent. Satan can be in one place at one time. He is a created being. He is a created being. James 4, 7 puts it this way. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. There you go with our submission again, our our humbling ourselves before God. Resist the devil and he will flee flee from you. What does it mean to submit yourself therefore to God? Well, that's just simply putting on the knowledge of truth. Know the truth and obey it. Know the scriptures and obey them. What is Satan doing? He's trying to tempt you to get you to fall. He wants to destroy you. Well, how does he do that? Go back to the garden. What did he do? Has the Lord really said? Every time he's going to come to you, he's going to come to me the exact same way. Did God really say? My, how we can justify sin. (laughs) Right? That's how he comes every time. Every single time, has God really said, this is going to taste so good? Has he said, don't? Know the truth 
and obey it. That is how we resist it. And he says it there in verse 9, but resist him firm in your faith. Now, your is supplied by translators there. The, the definite article, the, is actually there before faith. Your, the pronoun, is not there. So, the question is, what is this faith? Is this, is this my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? I have, I have trusted in him. I'm counting on that and that alone. Or is it what Jude says, the faith once delivered for all the saints? That is the body of faith, doctrine, the scriptures that we have, the fullness of truth. Which one is it? I think it's actually both. <laughs> I think it's actually both. Lord Jesus, you have said, I believe it, I'm going to obey it. Lord Jesus, I have committed my life to you. You have saved me. I am a gift from the Father. Satan can't do anything to me. I trust in you for that, in your keeping power. And what you have said, help me to obey. I think it's both. I think it is not only the faith, but I think it is your faith as well. Perseverance of the saints, your faith. Your faith and the faith. So we trust that he is sovereign and he always has our greatest good and his highest glory planned. So we trust that to be true. We know it to be true. We've read it to be true. And when we walk in it, we know the truth, we trust the truth, and we obey it. That's how we resist him. What did Jesus do in the wilderness? How did he resist the devil? That very thing, right? Did he not respond with scripture? He responded with truth. Satan tempted, the, the brazenness just baffles my mind, but no, our adversary, he knows no limits. He will go all the way to the one that created him to try to tempt him. In the wilderness, all alone, Jesus is tempted with not trusting God, but trusting in his own flesh, essentially. God has promised this. Why don't you take it now? That's really what Satan was saying. And Jesus kept entrusting himself to a faithful creator who always does what's right. And he gave Satan scripture. Guess what happened? He left. He left. Luke says he left for another opportune time, but the point being, in that time when he was being tempted, he departed from him. This leads us to another principle here that I want you to really have a solid grasp on. It seems one of Satan's favorite schemes is to isolate Christians from other believers or to tempt them to think that they are alone in their suffering that he wants to isolate you. COVID was a good illustration of that, wasn't it? Notwithstanding the struggles that people experience in their bodies, I'm not diminishing that, but the fact of the matter is that through governance and authorities that are on the, on the outside of the church, they came inside and they spread us out. If you have not come back into fellowship, Satan is using that right now. He is using that to isolate you, to make the temptation really, really strong. 
You need other believers. We need one another. Tempting you to think that your suffering is unique. How do lions attack their prey? They got their, you can see them down in the brush. They're looking out over the herd. and Oh, there's a sick one over there. Or there's a young one over there. And they rush to the herd and they do what? They try to isolate the sick or the young one. It's exactly what Satan does. He will try to pull you away from the fellowship. He'll try to pull you away from other believers so he can isolate you and consume you. That's the way he works. Your suffering is not unique. You're not alone. The second half of verse 9 makes that very clear. But resist him firm in your faith, knowing what? That the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Everybody, every Christian that has ever lived is experiencing the same things. Your sin is not unique, and your temptation is not unique. Satan would love for you to think that no one knows how I feel. I'm all alone in this. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to mankind. No temptation. They are all common to mankind from the garden forward. But here it is, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he'll always provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. God is faithful. The temptation is the same always throughout all time. There is nothing unique about sin. There's nothing unique about temptation. It is being accomplished the same way with our brothers and, in, uh, brothers and sisters in, in Sudan and in northern southern Africa and in the, all the remainder of the world. They're experiencing the same things. You are not alone in your temptation or your sin. So it's universal how it's to be dealt with. Resist firm in the faith. Last one quickly, resolve. That's our fourth point, verses 10 through 11. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Christian resolve is expressed primarily in hope of future glory. Christian resolve, that is, I will stand. Christian resolve is primarily expressed in your hope of future glory. We, if our hope was only in this life, we're what? The most pitied people. Pitiable. If we hope that our 401k is going to bring us the greatest happiness in all of eternity, well, 401k, I don't know what it's called here in the Bahamas. If your retirement account is what you think is going to bring you the most happiness, you're sadly mistaken. You are the most pitiable person there is. Some of you say, you should see my retirement account. I feel that way too. <laughs> but the fact is, for the Christian, the hope is not in this life. It's not in health. It's not in wealth. Our hope is in future glory. You will not hear, way to save, good and faithful servant. You're not going to hear that from him. Someone else is going to spend everything that you're putting up right now. If you want to hear, well done, my good and faithful, 
That message is on your lips continually. You may not be an evangelist, but I can tell you, you are in a workplace where somebody needs that message. You're in your home where somebody needs that message. We are ambassadors for Christ. We are, as it were, the fragrance of life to those who are being saved through that message, or we're the stench of death to those that are perishing. That's who you are. You are an ambassador. So we are looking for the future glory that the God of all grace will give to us. It is going to come. The, the, the perfecting that he talks about here, himself perfecting and confirming and strengthening and establishing you, it may not come in this life. We look to future glory for that. But it should be our ultimate confidence that that is the day. We, with the Apostle Paul, say, I, I know it would be beneficial for me to stick around for you, but I'm torn. I want to be with the Lord. You guys look great and everything, but I can't wait to get out of here. That's, that's the truth. It, it should be the truth if you're a Christian. It should be the truth. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. If Christ, if God the Father has given you as a gift to the Son, if he has began that good work in you, he'll finish it. He'll finish it. It may be in suffering throughout your entire life to where it comes to an end. It may be good things that you have in your life and yet comes to an end. Whatever the case is, know that the Lord is the one who is bringing it. Psalm 115.3 Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. He does all that He pleases. God's got you in this life. He is able to do it. He's willing to do it. And He will do it. So our four points, humility, trust, self-control, and resolve. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He'll exalt you in due time. He'll exalt you in due time. Trust that His plan is perfect for you, whatever it is, and that He will, in glory, deliver you eventually. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Your Word. Lord, may it... um, Do as you have said, not return void, but it will accomplish everything that you have sent it forth to do. May we take these character qualities, these attitudes, and apply them directly to our lives as we humbly serve one another and serve you, trusting that no matter what you are doing in our life, you have appointed it and you are in control of it. Lord, may The struggles that we experience not be because of our sin, but simply because the sovereign hand of God wants to do it. All to the glory of Christ. Amen.